My husband, Keith, I mentioned him last night. He is a runner. Uh, beyond just the Christian life run, he's a runner for real. Um, I guess that is for real, but you know what I mean. He has been through seasons where he runs really consistently and others where his running has had to kind of take a back seat to other things that are going on in life. One year when he was running pretty regularly, he decided to participate in a half marathon out in Pelagera Canyon near Amarillo. And two of our sons were still living at home at that time, so we packed up the family and made a weekend of it. And we camped in the canyon, and then the next morning the kids and I were there to cheer him across the finish line. Um, a little encouragement can go a long way when someone is in the middle of a hard run. So if we're going to run this race with endurance, we're going to need a lot of motivation and encouragement along the way. The book of Hebrews gives us both. So if you're not already there, turn back to Hebrews 12. And this morning we're going to start at the beginning of our passage, and then we're going to work backwards a little bit from there. In verse 1 of chapter 12 we read, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Back in September of last year, my husband began a study of the book of Hebrews with the men of our church, and as he started preparing for that study, he made a comment to me. He said, Hebrews is a book about Jesus and perseverance. And then a couple of weeks after that, I was doing a read through the Bible in a year program, and so a couple weeks after he made that comment to me, I came to Hebrews chapter 12. And well, actually the whole book of Hebrews I was reading through, and I realized that what he had said was amazingly accurate. The whole book of Hebrews is, this is Jesus, now persevere, or because of who Jesus is and what he has done, let us persevere. Clearly, God knows that we need a lot of encouragement to keep on, to continue, to remain steadfast, to endure. I mentioned last night that there are many of these exhortations throughout Scripture, but Hebrews is literally full of these calls for us to follow Jesus and to keep following Jesus. So here at the beginning of chapter 12, we receive some encouragement from those who have done just that. Verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. Therefore is a transitional word that connects what the author just said to what he's about to say. And it's always an important word in scripture. And it's one that we need to pay attention to. So we're going to see the connection here in just a bit. He goes on to say, since we are surrounded, or some translations say encompassed about, by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also. And then he lists the things that we need to do. So what is this cloud of witnesses? And what does this mean for us? The therefore in this sentence gives us a clue to who the cloud of witnesses is if we back up and look at what the author just said prior to that. So look at verse 39 of chapter 11. He says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. 
So the cloud of witnesses and the all these are talking about the same group of people. But to figure out who that group is, we need to back up a little bit further. So we're going to go to the beginning of chapter 11, and we're going to spend some time in this session in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is commonly referred to as the (coughs) Hall of Faith, which is kind of a moniker taken from the idea of the Hall of Fame, which lists the greatest players to ever play in a given sport. Similarly, chapter 11 recounts for us many of the great saints who have gone before us. So this great cloud of witnesses and the all these in verse 39 refers to all of the saints that are listed in this great hall of faith. These are saints who predate us. Saints who endured hardship, pressed on in spite of fear, suffered, and they finished their races well. And that is why they stand as an example to us. The Greek word for witnesses in chapter 12, verse 1, is martis. It can mean either one who sees or one who tells. So the question for us is, is the writer of Hebrews saying that these witnesses are watching us from heaven or that they are witnessing to us by their lives through the testimony of Scripture? So it could be the act of seeing, or it could be the act of testifying. Either the witnesses are watching us and cheering us on, like the spectators at the Greek games would have cheered on the runners there, or they're encouraging us by the testimony of their lives. So which is it here? And I think the answer may be both. But in truth, it's not something we can really be sure about until we join the cloud of witnesses one day. I want to share a few brief thoughts before we get to what we can know with certainty. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven calls attention to the imagery being used here by the writer of Hebrews. He says that this great cloud of witnesses, the spiritual athletes of old, if you will, he says they are now watching us and cheering us on from the great stadium of heaven that looks down on the field of earth. He goes on to point out that the witnesses are said to surround us, not simply to have preceded us. Now, I can't say unequivocally that those in heaven are literally watching us, but there are some examples in Scripture that point to that possibility. Among them are Revelation 6, 9 through 11, where those who have been martyred cry out to God asking him why he hasn't yet brought judgment on their persecutors. Of that passage, Alcorn writes, it seems evident that the inhabitants of the present heaven can see what's happening on earth, at least to some extent. And in Luke 15, 7, Christ said, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And similarly, in Luke 15, 10, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Alcorn notes, notice it does not speak of rejoicing by the angels, but in the presence of angels. Who is doing this rejoicing in heaven? He says, I believe it logically includes not only God, but also the saints in heaven. 
who would so deeply appreciate the wonder of human conversion, especially the conversion of those they knew and loved on earth. If they rejoice over conversions happening on earth, then obviously they must be aware of what is happening, and not just generally, but specifically down to the details of individuals coming to faith in Christ. In Luke 9.31, when called from heaven to the transfiguration on earth, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They seemed fully aware of the unfolding drama that they had stepped into, of what was currently transpiring on the earth, and of God's redemptive plan about to be accomplished. Again, we can't say with complete certainty that the cloud of witnesses is literally watching us from heaven. There is that possibility. What we do know with certainty is that their lives absolutely do testify to us. They stand as a witness to us. In the original Greek language, the verb form of the word witness is used five times in Hebrews 11. It's in verses 2, it's in verse 4 twice, it's in verse 5, and it's in verse 39. And in each of those instances, it refers to the giving of a testimony rather than just the watching of an event. John Piper says, I take the witnesses of Hebrews 12.1 to be the saints who have run the race before us and have gathered, as it were, along the marathon route to say through the testimony of their lives, by faith I finished, and you can too. The best way to illustrate this, he says, is with Hebrews 11.4, where the writer speaks of Abel and says, Through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel is in the cloud of witnesses, and he is witnessing to us by his life through the scriptures. This is the way all the witnesses of Hebrews 11 are helping us. They have gathered along the sidelines of our race, and they hold out their wounds and their joys and give us the best high fives we ever got. This is still Piper speaking. Go for it. You can do it. By faith, you can finish. I did it, and I know it can be done. Run. When I first read this quote from John Piper, it took me back to uh, my second day at the Air Force Academy. July 7th, 1984. I was barely 18 years old. And after, as I shared last night, after the evening meal that day, they took all the basic cadets to the chapel for that introduction into the chapel programs. Um, the basic cadets were all clothed in green fatigues. And the upperclassmen, or those over us, were all wearing their blue uniforms, so it was really able to dis really easy to distinguish the difference. And for the better part of the previous day and a half since we had arrived, I mean, we pulled up in a bus, and they, the upperclassmen get on the bus and start yelling, and that's how they talk to you. You don't, you don't hear anything other than a yell. And so for 36 hours, everybody had been yelling. If you've ever, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen movies with drill sergeants, and yeah, it's like that. So um, as we were dismissed from the chapel that evening, there was a young man in a blue uniform standing in the doorway of the chapel. And he was reaching out his hand to each one of us and shaking our hands and encouraging us in the Lord. And he was saying, um, well, first of all, he was doing it in a normal voice and not a yell. So it pretty quickly 
caught my attention. He was very different than all of the others I had seen wearing blue uniform. But he was saying things like, you can do this. God will be with you. He will give you the strength you need. He said, others have done it. I did it. And you can do this too. It was so refreshing after the previous day and a half. Um, It was a glimmer of hope in a, a difficult and scary time. And it was the hang in there that we needed to keep going. It really was, um, it was an exhortation to keep on keeping on. And it was really paramount for so many of us that night. We all need that kind of encouragement in our lives all the time. Piper, in the quote I just read, he gave us the witness of Abel. But I want to take a brief look at some of the others that we see in chapter 11. In verse 5 of chapter 11, we have Enoch. Genesis tells us that Enoch walked with God. He was faithful. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch never saw death. How awesome is that? Hebrews gives us the additional information that before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God. And that statement is immediately followed by verse 6, which says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what is that saying? It's saying that it was Enoch's faith that pleased God. Enoch believed God, and he believed that there was a reward waiting for those who would seek after God, a reward for finishing the race. Then there's Noah. Before we talk about Noah, let me ask you guys a question. How many of you have enjoyed the quarantine and the social distancing measures we've all been under this last year? Any takers? We have a few takers that have actually enjoyed it. I think like the first six months. Short periods. Yeah. And I'm done now. Well, think of Noah and his family in light of that. Noah was quarantined on the ark with just his family for a whole year. It's not all that difficult for us to imagine anymore. But meanwhile, the world that Noah knew was completely destroyed by a flood. So he had to figure all of that out once the waters receded. I know that many of us have prayed for life to go back to normal while realizing that it might be a new normal. It might not go back to what we remember. Noah absolutely had to adjust to an all-new normal once the waters receded. But Noah trusted God with the unknown, and he obeyed him. Hebrews tells us he obeyed him in reverent fear. Through his obedience, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8 takes us to Abraham. Abraham was asked to leave everything and nearly everyone he knew, all without having any idea of where he was where he was going. Think about being a man and having that conversation with your wife. Might not go over real well. 
Sarah dealt with infertility for what appears to be well over 50 years. And even after God had promised her son, it would be decades before she would hold him in her arms. Joseph, Joseph was hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of sexual assault, unjustly imprisoned, and forgotten there for years. Then there was Moses. Moses was nearly murdered as a baby. Later, Hebrews tells us that he chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then he got to lead a horde of grumbling people to the brink of the promised land, wandering in the wilderness with them for 40 years. Verse 26 of Hebrews 11 tells us, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ. What does that mean? If we read the the verse right before that, verse 25, we see that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the reproach of Christ is not Christ reproaching Moses, but rather Moses experiencing reproach or disgrace for the cause of Christ. And that is persecution. But Moses saw enduring abuse with God's people as greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. We have all studied Egypt in school, and we know the extent of the treasures that that nation possessed. So it's saying a lot that Moses would rather endure abuse with God's people than have all of that because Moses was looking for something better. Something better than all the wealth of Egypt. Verse 27 tells us that by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible or unseen. He endured because his focus was on him who is unseen as if he could already see him. This is really a parallel to the latter half of verse 26 where it says he was looking to the reward. So what was that reward? The reward is him who is unseen. Again, the reward is Christ. Chapter 11 goes on to tell us of many other saints as well. Some of them named and some of them not. Some who suffered horrendous things for their faith. Then the author of Hebrews says, Time would fail me to tell of all the rest. But all of these people, of whom the world was not worthy, according to verse 38, all of these endured. It tells us by faith they endured. By believing they endured. By trusting God they endured. They pressed on in spite of some really extremely difficult circumstances. And it tells us they did not receive that which was promised, but they kept looking to the reward. Look back to verse 13. Verse 13 says, These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. They knew that this world was not their home. And they desired a better one. If we look over to chapter 12, the end of chapter 12, verse 28. This verse confirms for us what they were looking for. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is what the witnesses from Hebrews 11 longed for. It was the city they were seeking, the country that they desired. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And why can this kingdom not be shaken? It's because Christ is there. That unshakable kingdom is our eternal destination in Christ in a place that we can only get to through him. And that's the goal of our endurance. COVID-19 has gotten our attention for sure, but our hope cannot be in getting back to normal or back to our comfort zone. Because even if we find it momentarily, it will disappoint. This last year has shown us that everything we consider normal and happy or safe in our own little kingdom, it can be shaken pretty quickly and pretty completely. When we take the easy way out, we settle for a shakable kingdom. Only when we endure do we hold out for the unshakable kingdom. The ultimate reward, a better country. In the presence of Christ with our Savior for all eternity. The reward Christ awaits us in that unshakable kingdom if we endure. So these saints in chapter 11 are like witnesses in a courtroom. They testify to who God is and what he has done. Their lives are testimonies for us. They faced hardship and persecution, yet they endured. Their lives of faith testify to what it looks like to run the race and to run it well. They surround us, shouting at, or maybe just talking to us in a normal voice like that young man in blues did to me. They're, they keep saying, keep going, because Jesus is worth it. Eternal life with God is worth it. The unshakable kingdom is worth it. So may our hearts yearn for that promised kingdom of Christ. And may we run with endurance toward him. These witnesses encourage us and they spur us on, but there's more motivation for us to be found at the end of chapter 11. The author of Hebrews tells us in verses 39 and 40, And all these, so all these witnesses, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, 
that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. We ignore the chapter and verse divisions, which obviously weren't there in the original letter to the Hebrews. These two verses are followed directly by, therefore, run. So, it's saying, this is true, so run. The therefore means that verses 39 and 40, along with the cloud of witnesses, are a motivation for our running. How is it a motivation? Let's read it again. And all these, the witnesses of chapter 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. John Piper says, I take verse 39 to mean that when the believers in the Old Testament died, their spirits were made whole and perfect, but they do not receive the full blessing of God's promise, which is resurrection with new bodies and a glorious new age, with all God's enemies removed and righteousness holding sway and the earth filled with the glory of God. They did not receive that promise yet. Why not? Why must the saints wait without their new resurrection bodies? He says the answer is given in verse 40. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, God's purpose is that all his people, all the redeemed, be gathered in before any of them enjoys the fullness of the promise. His purpose is that we all come into the fullness or the completeness of our inheritance together. God has provided something better for us. What is he talking about? What is that something better? Back in 1955, a Bible scholar, E. Schuyler English, wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews. In it, he said... God would not perfect the saints of olden times until we should be saved also, until we should, not through any merit on our part, but according to his sovereignty and wholly by grace, possess the better thing that the church knows in its union with Christ. So the better thing refers to the salvation brought to all believers in Christ. And God provided this something better for us so that apart from us, they could not be made perfect. Alexander Narn, he was a professor of divinity at Cambridge University back in the 1920s. He paraphrased these verses like this. And yet all these, though canonized through faith in the witness of scripture, lacked fruition of the promise. Inasmuch as God with us today in view, had provided a better fulfillment than they could conceive, that the completion of their blessedness might not be achieved without our cooperation. In other words, God provided something better by including us. The recipients of the letter to the Hebrews initially, and then by implication, the readers of that letter down through the ages. But he provided 
something better by including us with them, the Old Testament saints, so that all his people would be made perfect in Christ, leading to the ultimate fulfillment of the eternal promises of the new covenant. This is some pretty heady theology. <laughs> but the motivation in all of this is this. We must think on the fact that our lives and the races that we are running matter to God and that they matter to the saints that have gone before us and to those who will follow after us, those who will follow our examples of faith. That may be sons, daughters, husbands, family, friends, co-workers, Walmart greeters, whoever we have the opportunity to witness to in this life. But history is waiting for us to finish the race. The consummation of God's entire plan for the universe waits until every single one of God's elect are gathered in. All of history waits, and those who have lived by faith crowd the marathon route to urge us on, because they will not be perfected without us, nor us without them, because that's God's plan. In his book, Perseverance and Gratitude, David De Silva has a word of caution for those that the book of Hebrews was written to. And I'm going to take a little bit, little bit of liberty here and change his pronouns to help us to understand that this applies to us as well. He writes, Our gratitude and loyalty should be all the greater since God has given us a special place in the fulfillment of his promise to all the people of faith. However, our responsibility is likewise greater. Will we, at the very end of the relay race, drop the baton that has been passed to us in plain sight of the many who have already run the race so well and so honorably? I would say may it never be. At the end of verse 1, we are commanded to run with endurance. We're going to spend some time in our next session unpacking that. But for now, let's look beyond that into Hebrews 12.2 to another word of encouragement that we find there that's even more significant than the cloud of witnesses. Here in 12.2, we are exhorted to run our race with our eyes on Christ, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Greek word that is translated looking to here actually has a much fuller meaning than we get in the English. It's not just to gaze at something. It literally means to turn your eyes away from all of other things and fix them on one thing. And in the Greek, it's in the present tense, which means it's a continual action. It's not a once and done kind of thing. So we're encouraged here to turn away from everything else and to lock our gaze on Jesus. Always. All the time. Not just now and again. Not just for five minutes in the morning and maybe another five before bed. But always. My husband spent many years flying fighter aircraft in the Air Force. 
And as he was reading over what I had prepared for this retreat, he got to this part and he shared with me how the radar on the F-16 really beautifully highlights the truth of looking to Jesus that the author of Hebrews is trying to convey. During normal operation, the radar on the F-16 would merely sweep back and forth from like top to bottom. And it would go side to side, top to bottom, If there was another aircraft out there, it would put a little blip on the radar, but then it would continue its sweeping motion. If he wanted more information on that blip, he could lock the radar on it, and then the radar would look more intently at that, and it would shoot more energy at it, and then he could get information off of it, like airspeed and altitude, heading, and things like that. But in that mode, if, the air, if that other aircraft maneuvered, he could easily lose the lock and potentially lose track of the target. Because while the radar was locked on it, it was still continuing to scan for other aircraft. If he didn't want to lose that aircraft, he could put the radar into a mode called single target track. And then all of the energy from the radar would focus on that one target. And when it was focused solely and exclusively on that one target, it would make it nearly impossible to lose it. There could have been 75 more airplanes out there, and the radar would stay locked on that one target. And that is what we need. We need to have single target track on Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us toward, that we turn away from all other things and we look to him only not allowing ourselves to be distracted. A real life example of what can happen when we lose this single target track occurred in 1954. On May 6th of that year, Roger Bannister, in a race against John Landy, became the first man in history to run a mile in under four minutes. Within two months, Landy beat that record by 1.4 seconds. But on August 7th of that year, the two met together again for an historic race. As they moved into the last lap, Landy held the lead, and it looked as if he would win. But as he neared the finish line, he was haunted by the question, where is Bannister? As he turned to look behind him, Bannister ran past him, took the lead. Landy later told a Time Magazine reporter, if I hadn't looked back, I would have won. Both men had finished in under four minutes, but Bannister was the winner. There's now a bronze statue of the moment Landy glanced around, standing outside the Pacific National Exhibition in Vancouver. And Landy once joked that while Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt for looking back, he said, I am probably the only one ever turned into bronze for looking back. (laughs) But he lost his focus, and he lost his race. Landy's lapse of concentration is a picture of what can happen when we take our eyes off of Jesus. We must fix our eyes on Jesus if we're going to run to win the race of our lives. We have a vivid picture of this in Scripture as well. Peter learned the lesson of not keeping his focus on Jesus in Matthew 14. When Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water in the midst of the storm. Starting in verse 26 of Matthew 14, it says, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Some storms in life come because of our disobedience. But this one came because the disciples obeyed Jesus. Then Peter obeyed Jesus' command and walked on the water. But when he became distracted by the wind and the waves, he took his eyes off of Jesus. We look to Jesus by faith when we trust his word. We need to beware of the distracting storms which are a very real part of life in a fallen world. But we need to not be distracted by them. Instead, we need to keep our eyes continually focused on the one who controls the wind and the waves and can calm the storm. We're to focus our attention on Jesus. He is to be the target of our gaze. The cloud of witnesses that we talked about in Hebrews 11, they were all fallible. And while their lives serve as an example to us, our focus has to be on the one who is infallible. Donald Guthrie in his commentary on the book of Hebrews points out that the name chosen here in Hebrews 12.2, the one that we look to, the name there is Jesus, not Christ. And he says that emphasizes his humanity. He says a target must be knowable and the writer is exhorting his readers to fix their gaze on the only perfect example of manhood. Something, someone they could relate to. Let's finish this session by looking at the rest of verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What do these words mean? Again, I want to look briefly at the Greek because it gives us a fuller picture. The Greek word for founder can also mean author, originator, or pioneer in the sense that Jesus is the source. He's the source of our life, our salvation, and our faith. It also can refer to the leader or the captain, the one who goes before the troops, showing them the way. Hebrews 6.20 calls Jesus our forerunner, indicating that others would follow later on the trail that he blazed. So all of these senses of the word apply to Jesus with regard to our faith. No sinner is capable of believing in Christ for salvation unless Christ grants it. But also, he forged the trail of faith for all who would follow him. He has gone before us, and he has shown us how to live by faith in God alone. The word translated perfecter also means one who completes or finishes. Jesus finished his course, showing us how to finish well. He brings our faith to completion. Last night I mentioned Philippians 1.6. I'm sure you're all familiar with it. Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
So all of these words, author, founder, originator, captain, leader, perfecter, finisher, they all sum up the complete work of Jesus on our behalf. So we do not run to finish this race to our own glory or in our own strength. We run in the strength that God supplies, that in everything he may get the glory through Jesus. He will keep us running. So we set our single target track on Jesus. Take heart, trust him, and run as if our lives depend upon it. Because they do. And one last thing here in verse 2 before we close. What was Jesus' focus as he pioneered this race for us? Verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the horrific pain of the cross? He did it by focusing on the joy, the joy that was set before him, the joy he would experience when he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the joy he would experience when the Father received him, knowing that he had done everything his Father had asked of him. The joy on his face when he will see his beautiful bride. The joy he will have when he celebrates the marriage supper of the Lamb with all of those that he has redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus didn't focus on his circumstances. He didn't focus on the pain or the injustice that he experienced in this life. He didn't feel sorry for himself. I think we often do tend to focus on our suffering. And I'm not saying that we should ignore the pain or put on a fake smile and say it doesn't hurt. But sometimes we focus too much on the pain, too much on ourselves. We must focus on Jesus to properly orient ourselves to that which would otherwise be a distraction to us. There is so much contained in these three verses at the start of Hebrews chapter 12. And there is much encouragement for us to be found within those three verses. How can we press on with strength and courage and hope to run this race? We follow the example of those who have already finished their race and we fix our eyes on Jesus and the indescribable, unending joy that is set before us across the finish line. The joy of all the saints singing together before the throne. I love our worship times here because I feel like it's just a little picture. The joy of faith and holiness perfected by the work of Jesus. No more sin. The joy of seeing Jesus face to face. The joy of him wiping every tear from our eyes. The joy of Jesus rewarding us for every single act of obedience. Every secret good deed done. Every glass of water given to a thirsty soul. Every hour served in children's ministry. Every morning spent cleaning toilets in the church. On the joy of having an imperishable body that will never get sick. And never feel pain. 
on the joy of ruling and reigning with Christ. We must stay single target track on Jesus, focused on the joy of hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant, and of being with Christ for all eternity. Let's close in prayer. God, creator and sustainer of all things, courager of our souls. Thank you, Lord, again for your word. Thank you for using men to record these stories, stories of these saints who have gone before us, that we might read them and be encouraged to follow their examples of perseverance. God, thank you especially for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The one we look to, focus on, and run toward. Father, help us. Empower us to look away from all that distracts in the day to day, and to lock the radars of our hearts and our minds, our entire being on Jesus and let him lead us to our true home. God, to that kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thank you, Lord, for your plan that all your people, all of us be perfected together through Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Lord. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to take a break.